0: Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Cornucopia, Stories of Food, was a special pop-up show in partnership with the Groundwork Center. This performance was a showcase of Groundwork staff and other individuals from the local food scene. Cornucopia was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in February 2019. Stick around after the stories for some information about Groundwork Center. In our first story, Amelia Beakey has an enduring love for bread, but does bread love her back equally?
1: I love all food, and it's a wholehearted, all-encompassing love, expressed in the joy with which I receive all meals, the giddy anticipation I have for future dining experiences, and the voracious appetite I have for consumption. Within that cornucopia, however, there's only place for one first true love. And for me, that place in my heart will always be held by bread. Oh, for the lightly sweet but slightly salty soft kiss of two perfect slices holding just the right amount of peanut butter and jam. Or for snuggling down half a loaf crusts, of course, removed into one delicious doughy bite. As I matured from the red, yellow, and blue polka dots of Wonder Bread to the clearly refined profile picture of Aunt Millie, (laughs) I explored the bitter pucker of mustard and the tangy zip of a smooch with Miracle Whip on turkey. Growing up in the 90s, my affection extended without discrimination to all members of that foundational level of the USDA food pyramid to include grains, rice, and cereal. Ever an overachiever, if the recommendation called for six to 11 daily servings, I often managed 20. Often to the exclusion of the other five categories. And while it's a miracle I didn't suffer from scurvy during my teenage years, it did make me a master of the carbohydrate loading recommendations for an endurance athlete in that era. And for many years, it proved a reliable relationship Bread sustained me through many a track and cross country season, often in the form of an everything bagel, married perfectly with vegetable cream cheese. Bread was there for me when I ventured across the ocean to study and proved its diversity as a delivery device for the unexpected but delightfully delicious combination of tuna, sweet corn, and just a little bit of mayonnaise in the form of a panini from the most charming takeaway vendor. Bread stood by me through the financial struggles of early marriage and daunting medical school tuition when a crusty baguette brought a sense of glamour to an otherwise meager meal of grapes, tomatoes, and cheese. Bread and its colleagues were my solace and sadness, my cohorts and celebration in constants through every phase of my life. Stricken by extreme morning sickness during the earliest stages of my first pregnancy, when I could tolerate nothing else, Crackers and toast were by my side. <clears throat> uh, sorry. Um, early, later on in my pregnancy, when I started spilling sugar in my urine, my husband's comment on the uptick in my consumption of cocoa puffs caught me by surprise <laughs> and got him swiftly kicked out of any future visits with my OB. <laughs> How dare you speak ill of the puffs? Bound in holy matrimony or not, he would never come so easily between me and my first love. It was simply beyond the realm of my wildest imagination that my dearest sweetheart, bread, mind you, not my husband, (laughs) would ever treat me badly. Early contractions further complicated that first pregnancy and led to a bit of oversight on those rising blood sugars as our focus honed in on staying pregnant to term. Overachievement struck again, and four days beyond my due date, I delivered a babe the size of a three-month-old and promptly punched my husband in the arm, <laughs> blaming his six-foot, seven-inch stature for this enormous newborn. <laughs> in a few short years, I would learn that I had better listened to his concerns about Cocoa Puffs and that first loves aren't always forever loves. My second pregnancy brought return of those early contractions and determined now that I had an irritable, but otherwise hospitable uterus, there was no threat of preterm delivery. And I met with a nutritionist in hopes of avoiding medication for these escalating blood sugars that we could no longer just ignore. I was stymied by the handout, illustrating many of my familiar lovers. Toast, graham crackers, pasta, particularly deer through another challenging first trimester. But in portions required, that rendered them nearly unrecognizable. Half a slice, two small rectangles, a quarter cup. Not one for moderation. I knew the temptation would be too great, and I would have to make a drastic, though I anticipated temporary, change in our relationship. And so I did, trading cereal and pasta for lots of non-starchy vegetables and bread for meat, which was one first pregnancy craving outcome I could blame on the six-foot-seven-inch South African genes. And I managed a single daily serving of animal crackers by sticking to just one of each species. (laughs) A final lingering connection to my first true love. And our time apart proved worthwhile as my dutiful five times daily blood sugar checks stayed within normal levels and my son was born a full two pounds lighter than his big brother. No punches were thrown at that delivery and graciously no I told you so's either. Attributing that challenging time in our relationship to the interference of a placenta, I quickly rekindled my old flame. And as you might imagine, with a first love, we got back on track as if no time had passed. Though slightly more refined, sticking to locally made, stone oven-baked sourdough loaves and the most magical scones created in just the same fashion. Any warning signs of concern that arose, I quickly dismissed, happy to be back in that comfortable, glutinous embrace. Well, third time's the charm, or three strikes, you're out, is what proved the case for me, and in the, my final pregnancy, I realized I was in a toxic relationship. And through no fault of my faithful partner, but simply on the evolution of who I had become, and I realized I'd have to make the difficult choice to make a permanent change in our relationship. Noodles and a brownie would prove my final rendezvous with wheat, and how I might have approached that moment differently had I known them what I do now a fancier plate, an extra order, a long last lingering bite, though I suppose we can never properly bid adieu to our first love. But farewell was indeed necessary as my blood sugars approached 200 and I nearly passed down on rounds. It became clear that Brett and I could no longer continue into this next phase of life together. Perhaps I should have seen the signs sooner. I'd followed CrossFit workouts for years and skimmed over their advice against grain, thinking I'd always done well in athletics with them on board, and conveniently categorized that advice is not applicable. Seeing rashes and aches in my sons and me, it never occurred to me that my dearest love would or could do this. But upon delivering a little sister, much more aligned in size to her middle brother than her oldest, and seeing the resolution of our other health concerns, I accepted our newfound incompatibility, the end of a beautiful relationship, and we carried on, leaving bread behind. Nearly six years has passed, and we enjoy the occasional paleo loaf of bread or grain-free pizza crust, and I so comically recall the time I crafted what can only loosely be called soft pretzels to the rave reviews of my terrific trio who only could do so because they lacked reference to the original thing. (laughs) And for the most part, I find myself saved by gluten, as it's simply not an option for me, and even more freedom in the framework of no grain. I survived a trip to Switzerland in the first year after my breakup, and felt confident if I could decline a croissant in the heart of Europe, I was over my love. But every now and then, I'll have a moment. During our time in Oregon, where grain-free was pretty close to the original, we'd find ourselves detouring through Eugene to a tiny diner to enjoy paleo sandwiches and even waffle cones. And granted, the jury's still out on the paleolithic evidence of a double scoop of mint chocolate chip and a carefully wrapped almond flour cone. I'm keeping an open mind that those fossils could exist somewhere in the world. And most recently, right here in Traverse City. My crew was at Brew, and while I happily had my salad, my kiddos enjoyed the rare indulgence in a gluten-free sandwich, and I sneaked a bite. And it was a trip back in time, driving my Pontiac 6000, turning left across Bay Road into the Little Caesars drive-through to get a bag of piping hot, delightfully cheesy, salty, crazy bread, burning my fingers to eat it right then and there, and leaving none to share. I don't know how long I was lost in my thoughts, but I was brought back by the peppering of, Mama, are you okay? <laughs> the memory must have shown on my face, foreign to my littles, but familiar to my husband, who recognized that glimmer in my eye with a casual glance and said to them, she's okay. That's just how Mama looks when she thinks of bread. <laughs> well, first loves never die, but bread and I are star-crossed lovers, and while you can't control who you love, you can't control who you date. And I'm definitely in a much healthier relationship with food now that bread is off my plate. And I'll always have a place in my heart for that forbidden love. But breaking bread is now for a chapter in someone else's love story.
0: Next, Andrea Romine and her husband face some unexpected challenges when they decide to go into farming.
2: I met Ryan when we were teenagers. I was on vacation with my friend Julie at Little Glen Lake, some of you know where Little Glen is. We never kissed that week, But I went home and wrote in my diary that I was going to marry him someday. Now, you might dismiss that as a folly of a moonstruck girl. But 10 days later, I received a a letter in the mail from Ryan. And he titled it, 10 Reasons Why I Want You for My Wife. (laughs) (laughs) One of the reasons was, uh, you are sporty, and I am sporty. And we will. (laughs) We will do sporty things together. <laughs> uh, another one was, you are very adventurous and like to try new things. He was 14. Um, but we were two towns apart. And we didn't, of course, date through high school. My, um, my our reconnection when I was a senior in high school was uh, in 1995, and sparks flew. And our, my diary entry and his letter were prominently displayed at our wedding 18 months later. <laughs> at this point, I was working as a teacher, and Ryan was still trying to figure out what he wanted to do with his life. My nature-loving, creative, thoughtful husband already had some gardening in his background. He was drawn to the idea of sustainable farming. Not sure if anyone and his family would have seen that coming. Neither of us grew up on a farm. As a kid, Ryan spent his free time with friends riding bikes in his suburb with similar-looking houses. Uh, they were taupe, beige, and vanilla. <laughs> so <laughs> if you weren't familiar with the neighborhood, you might get lost. Um, As he grew older, he spent his free time playing hockey uh, in the winter, Uh, he was on a club team, and he also enjoyed water skiing with his friends. Uh, His part-time job was at MC Sports. His parents were like most in that when the topic of what you would do with your life came up, they would recommend high paying careers in statistically proven professions that made money, like being an orthodontist. (laughs) I was all for his following the life of sustainable farming. Ryan taught me how to cook amazing colorful dishes. And we frequently went to potlucks with his friends up north around Glen Lake who had beautiful vegetable gardens and cooked amazing food from their own gardens It was because of these friends that we decided to have a potluck wedding, uh, not a catered one. And I heard for months from people that was the best wedding food I have ever had in my life. Then when I was pregnant with our first baby, Winter, I was diagnosed with gestational diabetes. My midwife cautioned me to eat vegetables and lean proteins and I, could not have any sugar or any treats at all, sweet treats. Um, when winter was born, crying with gusto, thriving, and at a normal weight, she held up the rich placenta like a gold medal and congratulated us. My diet had made a real difference in his health and well being. It cemented for me that eating healthy food was crucial to our family's well being. And if that was something Ryan was passionate about, growing this healthy food. I supported that. We investigated farm programs at universities, but weren't able to find many that taught this kind of farming, or that even had professors who were farmers. We learned about farm internships on organic farms, but there wasn't really any organic farms in Michigan in 1998. Ryan's parents loved their son deeply, but they obviously didn't know or understand Ryan at all. It was just classic disconnect. We were coming from very different worlds and interests. Ryan's mom once asked him in all seriousness, why do you like nature so much? (laughs) Another thing is Ryan and I had a bumper sticker on our car and a few more to pass out that said, turn off TV, turn on life. But when we'd go to visit his parents, the TV was on all the time, even when we were trying to connect. Many conversations centered around latest clothing purchases, technology, new cars or current, real-life news like Princess Diana's death. While I appreciated the love and the gifts and the homemade meals that they showered on us when we were there, I just really didn't connect. We chatted when we were together, but we didn't really communicate. Ryan's parents had never heard the terms organic or sustainable farming. And the idea of not following the normal path to a career out uh, was just plain scary. So we had expected some pushback when Ryan and I decided we were going to leave Michigan in January. We were going to pack up our baby and our dog and some belongings, plus camping gear, and uh, drive around looking for farms to intern on, and hopefully find an intentional community to live in by spring. We were happily surprised that instead they invited us to spend Uh, dinner, uh, excuse me, they invited us to a send-off dinner a few weeks before our departure. Well, that is until his mother put down her fork, looked Ryan square in the eye and said, this is a huge mistake and you are not leaving this table until you decide not to do this. Yep, that's right, they staged an actual intervention. (laughs) Ryan's mom, dad, and older sister truly thought we were insane. One minute pork chops and mashed potatoes, the next minute psychological warfare. Three against two, and I was stunned. I can still see the color drain from Ryan's face as he learned what his parents and his sister what they really thought about our plans, and him as a son. I could tell he couldn't communicate in this onslaught of emotions and accusations. What are you thinking? Farmers are getting out of farming. Why don't you get a real job? And then you can garden as a hobby. You have a child to support. You can't just go camping. When your Doug and when you're, excuse me when your sister and Doug were in the same position, he got a job at a factory. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. Your grandfather and father worked so hard their whole lives. Why aren't you doing the same thing? You don't have two cents to your name. And Andrea, she doesn't have a teaching job lined up. What? What is an intentional community? You have to be thinking about these things. It could be a cult. Then, what about retirement? At that point, I was like, "Retirement? I'm 24. I don't even know what that means." <laughs> um, I tried to intervene. I was felt like a deer caught in headlights, and I was so angry, but I didn't want to show that. So I tried to explain, like. Um we thought about this. We were, we're, we're looking at colleges. Um, of course we're not stupid enough to join a cult. But then a sister, Danielle, stopped me. She looked at me and she said, you be quiet. We want to hear what Ryan has to say about this. So the whole room was quiet. And I looked over at my husband. And he was crumpled in his chair. And he just <laughs> choked out. I am trying to do what's right for my family. That's exactly why we're doing this. I want to be a good dad. I don't remember the rest of the night except for the fact that my baby was fussing and I was nursing him and my hurt feelings in the dark. No matter what, we would not be moved. I knew that I could teach anywhere, and Ryan had direction in his life. It was an adventure, not scary. Two weeks later, they sent us off with hugs, kisses, and tears, afraid, but accepting. We landed first on a farm in Georgia and then in North Carolina, where I taught middle school, and Ryan attended College for Sustainable Agriculture. I have to give Ryan's parents a lot of credit. They called often. While we, in our hurt, kept missing their calls, they sent a package in the mail. It was an answering machine. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) then they came to visit us. They didn't even mention the dilapidated housing that we were living in and raising our son in on these farms. They brought good gifts, maple syrup from Michigan, quality coffee for Ryan, chocolate for me, and toys for our baby, Winter. They invited us to go hiking in the mountains in North Carolina. Remember, his mom said, what do you even like about nature? Each trip, we proudly showed them around the farms we lived on, pointing out Ryan's part in them. Ryan's passion poured out of him. It was easy for him to communicate with his parents about this topic, his love of growing healthy food, especially over delicious farm meals. By the time Ryan graduated college and then landed his first job managing a farm in northern Michigan, They no longer thought we were insane. In fact, they completely changed their diets to almost all organic food (laughs) um, and pastured meats. And actually, his dad's training as a chiropractor helped them quickly make the connection between the nutrients we need in our body and the way that we grow the food. Over the years, Ryan's dad has come up many times. And he has worked really hard on our farm, driving tractor, Um, repairing things and as mom and dad have helped us with our four kids when we're both working 80 hour plus weeks they've also lent us money when it was tight our relationship is connected more now more than it ever was and they are number one cheerleaders (laughs) somewhere along the way I changed I discovered that farming is my passion too It's not just Ryan's. The kind of farm that we have is a community-supported agriculture farm, also known as the CSA. Our customers open boxes of beautiful vegetables each week. It's rewarding to watch their faces when colorful, beautiful vegetables full of life come out of their their boxes. It's fun to hear, it's like Christmas, because I honestly feel the same way too. I love writing newsletters and um, sharing the recipes that Ryan and I have come up with with our family from the same food that's from our land. You see, I'm still a teacher, but now I teach people about the connection between healthy food and healthy bodies. I feel like I'm a veggie evangelist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, On the last tour, uh, we have school tours, I invited the kids to touch, taste, and smell everything. Yes, you can try that. Yeah, pop that cherry tomato in your mouth. Crack that, that pepper open. It tastes so good. Try it. Um, do you know what this is? And then when we were in the lemon basil, I had them rub it in their hands and smell their hands. Um, to me, it's just magical, their connection with the, with the earth. And this one parent, she was just so convinced that her child didn't like vegetables. And when we were about to taste test the broccoli, she's like, oh. He won't eat that. He hates broccoli. And the child not only ate it, he asked for more. And I was like, when? <laughs> uh, another time, and this was recent, uh, I, we just had so much food in the garden it was going to be a killing frost. So I called the superintendent in Central Lake Schools and she sent the entire middle school out. We picked 40 bushels of perfectly good food that was all going to die that night and sent it to the food pantry. So anyway, as you can tell, I love this life. And when the kids were leaving, I overheard one of them ask his teacher, he said, this was the best field trip ever. Can we come back again? (laughs) And I was thinking to myself, yes, you can. (laughs) And you can also be a farmer too. Don't let anyone tell you you can't.
0: In the next story, Jim Lively is excited to raise pigs at his farm until a life challenge throws him a curveball. All
3: right, well, I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit on a small parcel of land that had likely once been very productive farmland but was now part of the soulless sprawl of Livonia. The closest I got to a meaningful farming experience was listening to my dad, an elementary school teacher, read me Farmer Boy from the Laura Ingalls Wilder series. I loved those stories of that sustenance farm and was jealous of that lead character's roles, his chores that seemed so important, things like training oxen and milking the cows and slopping pigs. My suburban chores were much more mundane, like picking up the dog poop and schlepping the metal trash cans from the curb on junk day. So I usually tried to get out of my chores and went to, wanted to go play with my friends, which seemed so much more important. But my dad insisted on teaching me that lesson, that you have to get your chores done first before you can go out and do the things that you think are more important. So when I moved up here and got a, my first piece of property, five acres of land in Leelanau County, um, which was part of a former 1880s farmstead, those farmer boy dreams were rekindled. Uh, But I was a complete rookie to rural living. I had, at that point, a very busy day job at what was then the Michigan Land Use Institute, now Groundwork Center. And I was raising four daughters. Um, My wife Kelly and I enjoyed homesteading. We would try projects every few years. First I discovered maple syrup, and it really changed my whole perspective on March and that mud season that we're about to enter. Then I took to growing Christmas trees, which was something my dad had done um, in our suburban postage stamp lot back in Livonia, but we learned how to grow our own Christmas trees. Then I moved into raising chickens and you know learned how to build a chicken coop and put in, up the fencing to keep out the predators. Even dabbled a little bit in the meat birds. Um, we always had a, had a nice kitchen garden, But eventually my wife Kelly got into a flower farm at a scale that required things like greenhouses and large deer fence and irrigation. It felt like we were slowly starting to move toward that farm dream. But to me, I always felt like farming meant raising animals. And for me, animals and meat meant pork, my favorite meat, and most people that I know, their favorite meat. So I wanted to raise pigs, but I also wanted to make sure that I was ready To take on something as challenging as pigs before I really got started so I called my friend Bruce who had raised pigs several times with his son over the years and he assured me that I could do it and that he would help me through the process so in May of that year I embarked on the project and bought four 30 pound feeder pigs from a neighboring farm Bruce explained to me the plan I was going to feed these pigs for about six months, and then we would call for a truck to come and take them to the slaughterhouse. They'd come back wrapped in butcher paper, and we'd eat the meat. It sounded pretty simple. And taking care of the pigs early on was really fun. Every day before leaving for work, I would sprinkle a little feed in their little wooden trough, and then I would fill the plastic water tub that was their watering can then I would put some water in the, in the pig wallow where they would like to roll. I really enjoyed watching them. They would run around, chase each other around the pen. They'd root up vegetables, and of course they'd wallow in the mud, and they'd scratch their back on the post, and it was a lot of fun. I had neighbors and family that would come over especially just to watch the pigs, so we had kind of a novelty. I was just starting to think that this pig farming thing was going to be a lot of fun when I got thrown a curve. My dad, who had been diagnosed with bladder cancer five years earlier and had all the surgery and was told that it appeared to be cancer-free, but it was back. And we got that dreaded diagnosis, and we knew what it meant. Reoccurring bladder cancer isn't curable. It just can be slowed down, and not for long. So we were told he probably only had a few months. That diagnosis came in early summer, only a month after the pigs had arrived, and it changed my whole outlook on this project. The pigs suddenly became an extra obligation that I had to tend to when I really wanted to just be spending time with my dad. He and I had gone through the hospice process with my mother about 18 years earlier, just after they had moved to Traverse City to be near my family. That experience and his extended recovery from the grief brought us much closer, and he had become a critical part of our family raising our daughters. Uh, knowing we were losing him too soon made every moment very precious. So as the summer progressed and the pigs kept growing, my dad's disease also progressed. Mornings before work, I would take care of my pig chores, and most evenings I would spend with my dad. I extrapolated in my head the fall calendar and knew that the doctor was giving my dad a prognosis that aligned pretty closely to the expected deadline for my pigs to head to the slaughterhouse. And I wanted to be rid of the worry of those pigs as soon as possible before my dad needed all my attention. By late September, the pigs were eating like, well, pigs, Um, and they were getting really big. So I called my friend Bruce, who had promised to help me finish this project, and asked him how soon could we get that trailer to come over and take them away. Bruce also had a few pigs to send to slaughter, so he made arrangements for the guy to come with the trailer in about a week, and we would finally be done with this project. I had some questions for Bruce about exactly how I was going to get the pigs on the trailer. He was a little vague, but said, I could build a small pen near the end of, the, of my big pig pen and uh, build it out of pallets. Don't feed the pigs for a few days. Put in some apples and acorns. Get the pigs comfortable living in there. And when the trailer comes, you just kind of put close one end of the trailer and op- or of the pen, open the other, and I'll load them right into the trailer. I had a few more questions, and Bruce didn't have any more answers. So the day the truck was coming, I told my dad that I wouldn't be visiting him that night, and instead I went to Bruce's to help him load his pigs on the trailer first. After about half an hour of standing in ankle-deep mud and pig shit and yelling and cajoling pigs, None of Bruce's pigs got on the trailer, and we had to give up. My pig mentor had failed, and now it was my turn. So when we arrived at my house, my pigs weren't anywhere near the pen where they were supposed to be. I dropped in a few more apples and acorns and tried to look real friendly and and welcoming, um, and that didn't really work. The old guy with the trailer started to get a little frustrated and he hopped in the pen and started yelling at the pigs and yelling at me and I said, you know, to myself, I don't think this is really the way to move pigs. <laughs> but he, surprisingly, the one little black pig, the most ornery one that the others didn't seem to like, immediately went for the pen, grabbed an apple, and we loaded him into the trailer. And I'm thinking, great, I got one, here we go. The other three pink pigs, they held back. In fact, they looked pretty happy to see that little black pig get on the trailer, and they stayed completely out. The old guy's getting mad, and he's yelling and kicking and trying to push these pigs, and they had nothing to do with it. So finally, the old guy got a little frustrated. He explains to me that he's working by the job, not by the hour, and this job was taking way too long, and he was leaving with only one pig on the trailer. Bruce left too, and I was standing there alone, with my three pigs, who looked really happy to be rid of their <laughs> little black friend. But I was pretty concerned. I didn't want to have these pigs anymore, and now I didn't know what I was going to do. So the next day, I called the slaughterhouse to see if when I could get that trailer to come back, and they informed me that the trailer, next trailer that I could get would come in January. Oh, that's not going to work, I said. That's not going to work. There's no way I could wait until January. I had to get rid of these pigs. A couple nights later, after I'd visited with my dad for a nice evening, uh, I went out with some friends to enjoy some music and have some drinks and just try to relax a little bit. Just as I sat down at the bar and were settling in for a nice night, I get a call from my next-door neighbors. The pigs had escaped from the pen, and they were in their bushes, and they wondered if we'd maybe come and get them out. Fortunately, all my friends thought this would be really fun, and so we all got up and ran back to my house and had a wild pig chase late into the evening. A lot of those folks thought it was really fun, but I was really starting to get kind of sick of the pigs. I knew I needed to get rid of them. So the next day when I talked to Bruce and wondered what we were going to do, he explained to me that really our best and only option was to kill the pigs ourselves. This was something that I'd kind of been thinking in the back of my mind, but I wasn't really ready to To deal with, Um, but he said he'd done it before and that he was prepared to help me, which I gladly accepted. So I scheduled a day with Bruce and my next door neighbor, who uh, knew all about the pigs now, and he had a gun and a tractor, and Bruce, of course, had the know-how. So um, I cleared the next day, or a day off of work, because I knew this was going to probably take me a whole day, sharpened some knives, I got a big plastic bucket for pig guts, and I um, ran a hose down by by the pig pen. The three of us took care of those pigs in about four hours. Bruce gutted the first pig with me watching carefully, really not anywhere near as grossed out as I thought I would be, actually kind of fascinated by the whole thing. On the second pig, Bruce handed me the knife and said, it's your turn, and he watched me, guided me through the process. When we got to the third pig, the last one, he said he had to leave, but he knew I could take care of this one myself, and I did. When it was over, I sat on the tailgate of the pickup truck next to three bloody pig carcasses all by myself, and I was basically giddy with relief and a little bit of pride. I had actually completed this project even more than I had expected. I had taken care of the whole thing. I actually knew where my meat had come from and where, how it had been disposed of. I started to feel a little bit like an actual farmer. So I dropped the pigs off at Buntings and Cedar for processing. They didn't have to go to the slaughterhouse anymore. I buried the pig guts, I washed the knives, and I went and took a shower. Then I went to visit my dad. Uh, (laughs) So he, he asked how it had gone with the pigs, and I shared my pride and relief in getting the job done. And I could tell he was also relieved, but neither of us wanted to talk about the details. We wanted to steer clear of the talk of death. So I was able to spend a lot more time now with my dad. And I was splitting the caregiving duties now with my sister who had moved back to town to be with my dad. We worked together to keep him home in his last days. As he faded, he remained mentally alert, making it really easy to be with him. We watched favorite movies, we shared old stories, did crossword puzzles, and enjoyed our last world series together. Uh. Well, it's really hard to care for a dying person you love, this was a job that I wanted and needed to do for my dad. He died less than a week after the pigs were gone. Now the job of killing those pigs, which any other time would have been a really difficult chore, had really become relatively simple compared to what I needed to do with my dad. Thankfully, that was a lesson that my dad had taught me. And I will say, the ham, bacon, sausage, and pork chops were delicious. (laughs) I'll be raising pigs again soon. Thanks.
0: Next, Logan Call finds that his diet isn't helping his social life when his family moves to a new city.
4: So I was raised really healthy. Uh, My mom raised my older brother and I in upstate New York. My mom was uh, one of the OGs of the macrobiotic healthy food movement. Back in her day, she was a chef, and that had a real influence on the way she raised my brother and I. Uh, we were raised in a really small town, about 500 people, and we lived on a beautiful five-acre property. And she planted out the property with about 18 different gardens, brimming with vegetables, medicinal herbs. We had fruit trees, um, and way before it was like a regular thing in Michelin-starred restaurant, she was putting edible flowers like on desserts and food that we ate. Um, and this was an incredible upbringing for, for me. I was heavily influenced by by this uh, kind of food culture that she created in the home. We were primarily vegetarian, vegan. Everything was from scratch. Uh, we, we cooked everything. A lot of it came from the property. And that was a big influence on me. I was in the kitchen constantly watching her, learning from her, very quickly starting to uh, cook myself, starting to make meals myself. Um, the sphere of influence of our healthy lifestyle knew no bounds. Our dogs were not spared. <laughs> Growing up, one of the more uh, labor-intensive chores was chopping fresh parsley and garlic to put on the dog's food <laughs> twice a day.
3: <laughs> when
4: we would leave for trips, we would like pre-chop everything and freeze it. It was like, it was really exciting to go on vacation, but it really sucked to have to prepare all the dog's food. (laughs) Matter of fact, when I was 12, uh, and wanted to buy Christmas presents for all of my family members, I started my own organic dog baking biscuit business, and was actually the first in the state of New York with organic dog biscuits. (laughs) This lifestyle really worked for us because the community that surrounded us and our friends all had a similar lifestyle. The community was anchored by a Walter school that was situated on a biodynamic farm, complete with a health food store. So going over to friends' houses and everything was great because everybody kind of shared this healthy uh, lifestyle, and it was all I knew. It was it was a it was a great way um, to to be raised as a kid. And just to give you a sense of the the community we lived in and just how like, alternative healthy it was. Um, one of the traditions in the community was on Christmas Eve, we would all go into one of the cow barns and sing Christmas carols to the cows. <laughs> so this was like my reality for the first <laughs> 14 and a half years of my life. My older brother graduated high school and he was determined to move out to California, Los Angeles specifically. My mom and I were tended to stay back and me finish high school but crazy series of events found my mom and I also moving across the country. So we moved from this middle of nowhere 5 acre beautiful house, three stories, you know, complete with a creepy basement to North County San Diego in the middle of Condominiumville in a tiny 900 square foot apartment. And all of a sudden, this healthy lifestyle that I had grown up with presented a major problem in my life. I was a painfully shy and awkward, uh, quasi-homeschooled, quasi-Waldorf-educated kid in a huge city um, trying to to make new friends and, and trying to not be so awkward. That wasn't helped by going to somebody's house, new friend's house, and getting looks as if I just assaulted their dog when asking for like a veggie burger or a tofu dog. My go-to move at a friend's house was hoping that there would be pizza and I could just like pick off all the toppings and just eat the crust. That is not a good solution and I realized that rather quickly. (laughs) And it was at this point that I really started to realize the influence of food and culture in our society and within social situations. And my solution was to introduce meat into my diet for the first time and up until this point it had been really a foreign concept to me and um, but I knew I had to strike some sort of balance I didn't want to like throw away my healthy upbringing I was aware of all the time money spent on my mom's behalf and so the compromise I reached within my own head and in, in, re- in reality was to eat chicken turkey and like seafood but I drew a very distinct line in the sand I, I didn't do anything with red meat, like burgers, steaks, like these things were actually like weird to me, like I just had no, like I just, it it was such a foreign concept to me, it grossed me out, and so I just kind of like knew that like if I had this compromise that I was somehow like adhering to this healthy upbringing, but also fitting in socially, and this kind of new lifestyle really worked for me throughout high school, it was like this perfect balance for me where uh, well, I don't I don't know what my mom was thinking at the time, but I felt good about it. Um, and so this 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 was going along smoothly. things were fine. I reached high school or college. And by the time I reached college, there was one thing that was really missing in my life and that was uh, a, a love life. Uh, dating in particular, just this this was this one thing where, I had started to get better around like, just making new friends and hanging out with some guys and things like that, uh, sports, things like that. Dating life was, was not going well, and like, it felt like every day that I was in college, like it was in my face that this was uh, a lackluster part of my life. So this is how I found myself standing in line at In-N-Out Burger with this girl. There's two things, there's two things to know about this story. First off, I ignored a lot of red flags with this particular girl. I I remind you that this was my first experience and I wanted any experience. I ignored the fact that there was another guy in her life. I ignored the fact that she primarily wanted to hang out with me when she needed homework done. And then the second part is that, for those of you who don't know, In-N-Out is an institution, specifically in Southern California. You don't fuck with In-N-Out. Like, you really don't. I had actively avoided going there. So remember, I'm eating meat at this point, but not. I don't, I've never had a burger. And so, like, I would just come up with any excuse. Like, friends would want to go. I'd be like, let's just go to Panda Express. Because, like, Panda Express was my jam at the time. Like, the three-piece Panda Express, orange chicken, like, I would just sell people on that, and um, <laughs> and I would actually lie to friends, like, yeah, I've been in and out, to- yeah, the burgers are delicious, like, no reason to go there right now. <laughs> Anyways, we're standing in line, and I'm having, I'm having a moment, because, like, I'm stressing out. Like, this is really a foreign concept to me. I don't know what to do, I don't know what it tastes like, and so while this is all going on, we get up to the counter and it's time to order, and I don't know how to order or what to order. Um, for those of you who have been, it's very straightforward. It's one, two, or three. It's That's the menu. That's why I hadn't gone. Like, it's it's burgers, like, it's meat, like, it's red meat, like, it's cow. Um, so. So, we get up to the counter, and thankfully she just chimes you know been there a million times probably she's like, "I'll have a number two, so it was an easy out for me. It was just like, "I'll have what she's having thanks <laughs> uh we get our burgers we're sitting down. she's getting right into it It's any other day' she has no idea, obviously I wouldn't have told her such a thing and so this this for me though it's like this is like the final strand of this like healthy upbringing that I'm like going to break and um But there's no, like, option, like, I'm not going to run out, like, I'm not that awkward, like, I'm not just going to go for the door, and I think, I remember, like, in the moment being, like, just, like, wanting to be cool about eating a burger, and, like, the only references I had were, like, like movies, right, and, like, just, like, how you, like, hold it, like, probably, like, with one hand. (laughs) So, anyways, the only thing to do at this point is to take a bite of the burger. Which I did, it was fucking delicious. <laughs> I, I ate the whole thing. I went back later that day and I got a number three. For those of you who don't know what a number three is, it's a double-double, it's just, I added the animal style fries. So in case you're curious, things with that girl did not work out, punctuated by the fact that her dog bit me in the face just a short time later. But my relationship with meat was never better. That final strand of my childhood healthy upbringing had been cut and I was on a runaway train to Flavortown. I ate everything in sight, literally. Going out was no problem. The weirder and the stranger, the better. Um, And this this was my new reality for the next four to five years, really. Awkwardly enough, though, for most of this time, I was still living with my mom. And like all good moms, she was kind of there in the background poking and nudging me and kind of sending me articles on animal agriculture and books and films and various different things. And like all good 20-year-olds, college students, I actively protested and was generally a dick uh, to my mom at this point in my life, specifically when she was trying to interrupt my new relationship with meat. But four to five years after that first bite of burger, she handed me a book called Eating Animals. For those of you who don't know the book Eating Animals, it's a rather influential book at this point, so much so that Natalie Portman just recently turned it into a documentary. I didn't know this at the time, it wasn't a reality at the time, it was just another one of these books that my mom was trying to get in front of me. For whatever reason, I decided to start to read this book. And I really believe that the foundation that she laid for me growing up, it was such a strong foundation, and it was built and cultivated in such a beautiful way that this book started to resonate with me immediately. And the difference being that instead of her telling me about these things, it was somebody else. It was written by somebody else. And it was also in my own time, uh, a little bit older. And by the third chapter, I decided to go back to being a vegetarian, just like that. And this book, finishing it, led me on to this whole new journey with food for me. And within two years or so, two, three years, resulted in me actually switching from my original profession to being a vegan chef. And so now, to this day, which is my profession now, I really appreciate this food journey because it has given me such a wonderful perspective of where people are, no matter where they are, and what I like to call their food journey. And I like to reference back to these stories um, when encouraging people to be a little bit healthier with their food choices, knowing that most of us, including me, have been there. And now I have the wonderful experience of having watched my mom go through this meat journey that I have been on. And we've really come full circle to the point that even to, to this point today, we get to work together on events. And now it is two of us when it comes time to dessert to be putting edible flowers on there. Thank you. <laughs>
0: In the next story, Stephen Hanna goes on a cross-country bike tour and finds that meals and miles become the measure of time.
5: So my story begins in the summer of 2015, in which I spent two and a half months cycling across the United States. I rode from Nags Head North Carolina to San Diego, California with an organization called Bike and Build. Uh, Bike and Build is a nonprofit based in Philadelphia that focuses on affordable housing and youth empowerment through service. I had 27 other teammates and a very, very good time. And so while you're on a trip like this, time begins to disappear. And in place of the minutes and hours that we're all very commonly familiar with, Uh, became Meals and Miles. My day was ruled by Meals and Miles. And the first meal of the day was breakfast. Breakfast would begin in dark church church basements basements, and community center kitchens. We would usually enjoy a bowl of cereal, peanut butter and banana bagel. While we were in the South, we were treated to some delicious biscuits and gravy. And in the Southwest, family-famous breakfast burritos. They were... Out of sight. Um, And so as we finished breakfast, I would stuff the back pockets of my jersey with snacks and ride off through the sleepy small towns as the sun just began to rise. And those morning miles were always my favorite. You had slow conversation, and you didn't have to worry about constantly calling out, car back, like you would later on in the afternoon. As the sun continued to rise, so would my appetite. And soon, you could find me stopped at a gas station or convenience store, filling up my water bottle in their bathroom and perusing the aisles looking for that perfect snack. I could reliably depend on the cherry Pop-Tart to help me forget about that hill I had just climbed. (laughs) Leaving the gas station, and maybe only five miles later, I would start to think about that next meal in the day. And the next meal was lunch. But lunch on Bike and Build could not be enjoyed until you had biked half your distance for the day. The tiny trailer that carried our limited belongings would pull over on the side of the road, and our tube coolers containing the leftovers from our dinners for realistically the past two weeks would come out. (laughs) And those coolers were a place of great culinary creation. You would really make some amazing combinations. (laughs) While cycling through Tennessee, we got an especially early start to our day, attempting to beat the heat, and me and two other teammates rolled into lunch at 9 a.m. We had just covered 40 miles, and cookies and cold hamburgers sounded like the perfect meal. (laughs) My teammate's recommendation to add some grape jelly and tortilla chips as condiments spice it up a bit. It was delicious. And although at the time I definitely recognized that these meals were not ideal, they left something to be desired for. And that desire was left for dinner. So while traveling through the South, we were shown amazing Southern hospitality. We would roll into rest uh, not restaurants, we would roll into many a church, shown amazing casseroles, eating with great community members, sharing amazing conversation. It was really a treat. But as we continued to travel further and further west, dinner became less and less reliable. And so although there was no truly terrible part to this trip, if you were to ask me what my least favorite state to have traveled through, I would undoubtedly tell you that it was Kansas. Kansas was rough. And to succinctly summarize it, I use these three H's. The three H's of Kansas are heat, headwinds, and high-speed (laughs) semi-trucks. So while traveling into the last town that we would spend the night in in Kansas, a fourth H emerged. This fourth H was hunger. We had spent the day (laughs) battling the winds, dealing with the harsh sun. And about five miles outside of town, I got a flat tire. I pulled off to the side of the road. My head was foggy, legs were tired. I was swatting away, biting flies that were traveling at me in swarms. As an, and as I unraveled my inner tube, I heard the ding from my cell phone. It was a notification. Could it be a picture, perhaps, of a delicious spread awaiting me at our host? Was food soon to be in my future? The answer was no. <laughs> we were told that although the YMCA we would be staying at had a swimming pool, they would not be providing dinner for the night. So that meant one thing. That meant it was time for some donation magic. And donation magic was the term we used. We, we said DMing. And so DMing. <laughs> <laughs> To DM meant that rather than head to the host, you would travel around town and visit businesses covered in sweat and still in your cycling spandex and ask them if they would ever so kindly donate you and the 27 other hungry cyclists you were traveling with a free meal to help keep our program costs low. This was not exactly what I wanted to do heading into Garden City. <laughs> I got back on my bike and sullenly began to ride the remaining five miles into town. Two miles later, I heard another ding. What bad news awaited me now? Fortunately, a teammate had arrived ahead of me and started the DMing process, and he had (laughs) scored possibly the best donation we would receive on this entire trip. To my delight, I realized that we would be dining at Golden Corral that night. (laughs) Those of you unfamiliar with Golden Corral should know that it is an all-you-can-eat buffet. I rode on a cloud the remaining three miles. (laughs) Getting into the YMCA, I met my excited Twenty-seven teammates unfurled my sleeping bag on the YMCA's squash court, swam in the pool, and got ready to walk the half-mile over to Golden Corral. Arriving, I wanted to enter Reverend. This store manager had decided to allow 27 cyclists into his all-you-can-eat buffet for free. But as I crossed the threshold and entered the quiet establishment, occupied by a few Kansas families looking a little bit puzzled as to why such a group was coming to eat there. I I saw in front of me a spread, spread filled with everything you could imagine. They had spaghetti and steak next to soup and shrimp right in the middle of Kansas. (laughs) I picked up a plate and began to, it soon was quickly filled. I ended at the ice cream bar and could not resist that pile of gummy bears, adding them, balancing them on top of the rest of my pasta. (laughs) I sat down (laughs) and enjoyed a tremendous meal with amazing friends that I'm still very close to today. Golden Corral helped to show me that, although it may not serve the most delicious food I've ever eaten in my life, And although many of my teammates felt rather sick the next day, (laughs) a meal has the power to leave lasting memories. And this memory leaves me feeling very full. Thank you.
0: In our last story, Diane Connors finds that a very special friendship built partially on a love for food inspires her daily.
6: (laughs) (laughs) So I met my friend Jim in 1980. I lived in Minneapolis at the time. And I, I worked with a, an environmental organization there. And I edited their monthly newspaper. And one day, Jim walked into the office. And uh, he had come to volunteer. And he retired very early in life. He had been a professor. And so that was a pretty handy volunteer for me because he knew how to write. He knew how to research. And he also had decades of experience um, in the civil rights movement and in the environmental movement. And that was valuable to me also because I was young. I was 24 then. And so I had a lot to learn about the way the world worked in those areas. And he had been a professor at a a college in the South and had been supportive of black activist students there. In the environmental movement, he read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, um, sort of an epic ecological book. But he read it in real time when it was um, serialized first in the New Yorker magazine over three issues in 1962. So for me, I had a lot to learn from Jim. And uh, we ended up sharing a lot of ideas. We ended up sharing a lot of meals. I had a lot to learn from him about food as well. And uh, I still remember the first time that Dean and I, my husband and I, invited him over for dinner. And I, I got, at that point, a sense of sort of the signature way that he prepared food, and that was Very simple, using just great ingredients, but simple and often elegant. And so that first night, it was uh, combining cream cheese, blending it with butter, and finely minced cucumber. And that was a spread to put on crackers. And the next day, when he came into the office, he had with him an envelope that he had created just by taping some paper together. And inside of it was some seeds. And he said, "You know, when I, I went by your garden, I saw that you grow curly parsley. So here's some seeds that I've saved, and maybe you'd like to try them and see what you think." And it was flat Italian parsley, which I've since learned, I learned the next year, you know, had a lot more flavor to it. So that really began a long friendship based on uh, the garden, food, and talking about the state of the world. And our discussions weren't always just in person. For the first time in my life, I had a friend who actually wrote me letters, even though we lived in the same city and we saw each other almost every single day. (laughs) And I still remember when he came into the office the first time and handed me an envelope. And I'm sort of curious and opening it up and looking inside and pulling out what he had in the envelope. And what it was was typed up notes of some additional thoughts he had on a conversation we had had the night before. Other times it might be a book title that he thought I might be interested in or a copy of an article that I would be interested in. So, you know, that relationship meant so much to me there, but I did one day sit. Jim down because I had a big announcement to make to him. And that announcement was that Dean and I intended to move back to Michigan. So he was quiet. He took sort of a long breath. And he said, well, you know, friends stay in touch through letters. And we did. And we wrote lots of letters. And in those letters, you would find us still talking about food. And as it turns out, he actually visited us every single year, twice a year. So he would come in the spring, and we would plant seeds of radishes and Swiss chard and lettuce, and we would talk about the state of the world. And then he'd come again in the fall, and we would sit out in our backyard with the maple trees and sitting at the picnic table, and we would pluck basil into a laundry basket that I have, because I would make pesto to last us throughout the wintertime, and we'd talk about the state of the world. And when my interest turned to local food and agriculture, he's the person who turned me on to farmer and poet and novelist Wendell Berry, who's sort of an icon in my world. And Jim knew about farming. He grew up on a farm in rural Minnesota. He, they even used horses to plow on his farm with his family. He was born in 1937. And one day when he was visiting, some friends of ours who were beginning farmers in the area, um, they called up and they said, doesn't Jim know how to, to butcher chickens? Do you think he would come and teach us? And so off we went. And we butchered chickens, and I didn't cringe, it, uh, you know, I wasn't squeamish, but I still remember that on that fateful day for my friend's chickens is the day that I learned about chicken feet. And so he um, taught us how to take the skin off, scald the chicken feet, and take the skin off, and he looked practically like he was in heaven um, with a lesson he learned when he was a little boy where you use everything from the farm. And he said, oh, chicken feet make the best soup stock. So he also taught me how to, to skin a tomato, same thing, scald it, and then cut it through the, sh- the short part in the middle so that you can then cut it in half and squeeze out the seeds, and then make a tomato sauce, which again, was just simple and elegant, very simple ingredients, and it just bursts with flavor, just basically tomatoes, olive oil, and some herbs, um, oregano, basil, garlic, salt, and pepper, and that's it. And the other thing that really has become a big part of our lives is we have a salad after just about every single uh, dinner that we have. And it was a salad that he created um, and taught us how to do just a simple vinaigrette with olive oil and, and vinegar and um, mustard and, and how to toss it. And he's, he had it at the end of his meal, and we always have it at the end of our meal. And for him, he called it uh, salad as sacrament, because he realized that for him, having this ritual of making this salad every day that that was some, a way that he was connecting to the earth and what he grew or other people grew, and also that it was his way of taking responsibility for himself, taking care of himself. Um, and he even had vestment, uh, vestments. He had this, um, he always had a, uh, an apron, a chef's apron, blue and navy striped um, chef's apron. So then on yet another visit, He and I were in the backyard hanging up clothes on our clothesline, and he actually asked me a non-food related question. And he said, would you be my medical power of attorney? And he wasn't sick, but he was getting older, and he was a very practical person, and so he was just sort of getting things organized in his life, taking responsibility for his life. And he said, you know, If something serious happens, that probably means you need to, to, you know, come to Minneapolis pretty quick. And I said, well, you know, if something serious happens to you, I guess I'd be coming to Minneapolis pretty quick anyway. So, of course, the answer was yes. Then a few years later, I got a call, and it was his next door neighbor, and she was calling to let me know that he was in the hospital with pneumonia. And he was 79. And she said, you know, there's lots of people looking in on him. Um, You know, you might want to wait before you think about coming because, you know, see how he's doing. Because, you know, once he comes home, that might be the time that would be really, really good for you to come and be able to really be with him. So I thought about that, but the next morning, I just, you know, I just thought, you know, 79 and pneumonia, and so I started calling airlines, trying to find a flight that I could get the next day or that day to Minneapolis, and um, I would, and I was saying to the airlines, you know, can you please treat me like family and allow me to have this be an open-ended return? But then I got a, another phone call, and this time it was from a doctor. In the hospital because my name was on the medical power of attorney and she said you know we need to put Jim on a ventilator and she said we've talked to him about it and he said okay if it's truly temporary and it's not just hopelessly extending life and I said so you aren't calling to ask me permission. You're calling to inform me." And she said, yes. So I didn't have to make that tough decision from afar. And I got back on the phone, and I found a flight, because whether Jim needed me or not, I needed to be with Jim. I got a flight. And I also got another phone call. And my heart sank. And so I called someone else. I called a friend of Jim's who lives in Austin, who I had never met. uh, But I felt like I knew him, because Jim would talk about him and talk about him in letters. And he would actually call, this, this friend from Austin would call Jim whenever Jim was visiting at our house, because he too needed to talk to Jim about the state of the world. So I said, he's gone. But he and I still flew to Minneapolis, and so did another friend from Ithaca. And we went through things in his house, including some boxes where he had very well-organized files. And they were files of all of our letters. Um, organized by name. So we um, we each took our file of letters and they let me take Jim's recipe box and also his blue and white apron for Dean. And um, I don't know, you know how if you smell certain fragrances, that'll remind you of someone. Well, I can tell you that if you share food and cooking with someone as a big part of your life, they'll be with you always. And Dean and I um, took a, a choppy boat ride with two friends to an island in Canada that Jim loved and where his ashes would be spread. And there was no question, one of the meals that we would be making together, it was one that Jim had, had made with each of us. And it's rice and greens. And when our friend from Austin was asked by Edible Austin for a recipe, it was rice and greens. And when Dean and I get back from any road trip, and you're sort of weary, you know, it's like it's, you're getting home around dinner time and you're just tired, but you want comfort food and you want something easy, it's always rice and greens. And it's simple. You just saute some chopped onion, you throw some chopped greens on top of that. We always have some in the freezer. It could be Swiss chard. It could be spinach. It could be kale. Put the lid back on the big skillet. Let it steam until the greens are bright green. Then put some already cooked rice on top and some, a little bit of cheese. Let that cheese melt. Serve it with a salsa with balsamic vinegar. It's simple. And talk about the state of the world.
0: this is Karen Stein again so this show was particularly fascinating because it gives rise to the reality that for as much as having sustenance is a universal part of the human condition our relationship with food is among the most highly personal choices we make I myself have made a few choices in my own diet based on health, preference, and what I have access to. Like, I have never eaten pork. I gave up beef in my early 20s when I found that the delight to my palate was no match for the agony to my stomach. Similarly, I only know that the beers are unbelievably good at the Workshop Brewing Company, which is where your hearsay convenes, because of popular opinion. You see, beer and I had a terrible breakup years ago when I realized that I liked beer a whole lot more than beer liked me. And because of some childhood food trauma, I have a profound and admittedly ridiculous phobia of strawberries. Somehow in adulthood, I have discovered a love for Brussels sprouts and beets and the combination of watermelon with fig goat cheese. And after my breakup with beer, I discovered a new love in bourbon. And when I bump into people I know from the gym while I'm at the grocery store, and I see their eyes sort of drifting to see what I've got in my cart. There's a part of me that hopes they notice all the vegetables underneath the potato chips, but there's also a part of me that wants to say, yep, potato chips, gotta live like I'm alive, you know? It's wonderful to have community organizations like Groundwork to help us explore food while also creating a system that helps keep local farms going. So if you're unfamiliar with the Groundwork's food and farm advocacy programs, let me tell you a few things. Groundwork became one of the first organizations in the United States to commit resources, staff, and ingenuity to nurturing the local food industry. This began 15 years ago, and since then, Groundwork has helped to create a local food economy in northwest Lower Michigan. The tremendous momentum of Groundwork projects has helped to make the local food economy here one of the strongest and most respected in the United States. The work has helped to put local food into school cafeterias while putting money into farmers' pockets. It has helped to create one of the most respected farm-to-school programs in the country, and it has helped to increase the supply of healthy local food in food pantries. Groundwork is creating healthy food cultures in the schools by fostering ongoing food education, taste tests, gardens, and more. And nationally, they are on the forefront of culinary medicine education programming. Find out more at groundworkcenter.org. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, and to our MC for the evening, Jeff Smith. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Thanks for listening.